Today on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. There is a tendency and a tragedy in the human heart to corrupt the concept of beauty. Our human temptation and trait is to substitute the truly beautiful and the morally good for what is simply a feast to our senses and a delight to our eyes. To substitute what is morally good for what is satisfying to our senses. So what makes someone beautiful? That's the question we'll look at today on Know the Truth. Philip DeCourcy continues a practical study in the book of Proverbs called That Makes Good Sense. One of the most important discussions we find in this ancient wisdom book focuses on the essential qualities of a potential spouse. And in a culture where appearances are so highly sought after, it's crucial we go to the Bible for an accurate understanding of genuine beauty. You can catch previous segments online at ktt.org. But right now, here's Pastor Philip. Proverbs 18, verse 22. We're back to looking at the subject, looking to marry. Um, we, the last time we were together, we saw that the writers of the book of Hebrews are encouraging the young men of Israel to look carefully when it comes to their choice of who they will marry and spend their lives together with. There is the happiness of a good choice. There is the heartache of a bad choice. A pastor in, in Northern Ireland told me about a, a man who was on a bus and the passenger next to him noticed that he was wearing his wedding ring on the wrong finger. And he plucked up enough courage to, to let him know in case the man just had, uh, you know, misplaced the ring. He said, sir, do you realize that your wedding band is on the wrong finger? He said, I do. And kind of left it at that. And so the guy followed up. He says, well, do you not want to put it on the right finger? He said, no, I have it on the wrong finger because I married the wrong woman. And, and uh, we want to avoid that. We want to make sure that the uh, singles and the young people of our church make wise choices when it comes to probably the most significant choice they will make in life bar their decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a look at it. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. This proverb is reminding us you need to make a good choice when it comes to your life's partner. And if you make a good choice, you'll enjoy good things and you'll see the favor of God in your life. Isaac Watts has been called the father of English hymnody. Today, we still sing some of his hymns. They are some of our favorites. Joy to the world. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. God, our help in ages past. In fact, he started writing these hymns in the 18th century after complaining consistently to his father about the dismal and dull songs and singing in the nonconformist chapel he attended with his family in England. His father had enough of this young man's complaints, and so he basically told him, you know what, then you go and write some better songs. And he did. Joy to the world. Oh God, our help in ages past. Isaac Watts was brilliant, but he was not beautiful. Let me look at those two sides of his nature. He was brilliant, 
In fact, at age four, he learned Latin, at age nine, Greek, at age 11, French, and at age 13, Hebrew. I mean, this guy was a stellar student, so much so that some of the men of that day offered a scholarship for him to go to Cambridge or Oxford so that he could be trained to go into the Anglican ministry of the Church of England, but he refused. He was a nonconformist, which in that day generally meant you were either Congregationalist or Baptist. So he went to a nonconformist seminary and he offered himself to the ministry of the independent churches of England. He ended up in 1702 taking a very significant church in London called Mark's Lane Independent Congregational Church. And there he ministered until 1712. In 1703, he suffered from a psychiatric illness that would plague him from the rest of his life emotionally and physically. He was brilliant, but he wasn't beautiful because added to that complaint that he had, he was five foot high. He was pale of complexion. He was skinny in his frame and he had a disproportionately oversized head. So much so, do you ever see any portraits or pictures of him? He's always in a very large gown that seemed to cover and hide the fact that he had such a big head and a small body. Now, this also affected him in terms of his relationship with the opposite sex because Isaac Watts did fall in love with a young woman. Her name was Elizabeth Singer, and she loved him. She actually loved him very much. And so he decided to propose marriage to Elizabeth, but was rebuked and refused to his own heartache and heartbreak. And what was interesting as I read up on his life this past week is the fact that one biographer says of that breakup, quote, though she loved the jewel, she could not admire the casket or case that it came in. Not interesting? Here's a situation where although this woman loved this man for who he was, she couldn't get past the fact that she didn't like him for how he looked. She loved the person she knew, but she didn't like the person she saw. And for her, that was a make or break issue by the sound of it. She liked the jewel, but she didn't like the box. Now that got me thinking, brought me back to this whole subject we're looking at. What do our young people look for in a spouse? How important is the physical attraction factor? What's the relationship between the jewel and the box? Don't we encourage our young people to look beyond the physical, to realize that beauty can sometimes only be skin deep? This incident raises a whole slew of questions. What importance should we attach to the physical side of dating and mating? Well, let's get back to the book of Proverbs because I think we'll find at least some answers to those questions as we turn again to the advice that's being given by these fathers to the sons in the nation of Israel. These men are sitting their sons down, and by means of the writings of these Proverbs, they are telling them what they ought to look for in a future wife. They are certainly big on marriage. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. It's time to sit down and help these young men navigate through their uh, raging hormones and their, their emotions and help them to think clearly about what they ought to look for in a wife. Because they are searching. They are intrigued. They are being enticed. And he that finds a wife finds a good thing. 
But the book of Proverbs reminds us that there are good choices and bad choices. And this book reminds us that there is happiness in finding a good wife and there is heartache in finding a bad wife. Now, I'm not going to rehearse how we uh, underscored that the last time we were together, but I want to pick up where we left off and I want us to continue to look at the um, insights and the instruction that's being given here by these men to their sons. And knowing the uh, tendency of young men to concentrate on the physical form, these men want to remind them that there is a beauty that's deeper than what's on the outside. Remember how the book finishes, Proverbs 31, verse 30? Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman that fears the Lord is to be praised. This is what these fathers are setting before their sons. They want them to think about beauty from a biblical perspective. They want them to look beyond the physical form of these young women and take a look at their hearts, their spiritual commitments, their moral character. And so they define beauty from a biblical perspective. We started to look at that under three headings, debatable beauty, desirable beauty, durable beauty. But I do want to say this again by way of introduction. I want you to listen. I want parents to listen, and I want children to listen. Physical attraction is never enough, according to the book of Proverbs, to start or sustain a marriage. It's a factor, but it's not a primary factor. Physical attraction is never enough to start or sustain a marriage. And let me give you three reasons for that statement just by way of introduction. Number one, because with the passing of time, that will change altogether. When gravity has done its work and we have had too many donuts and exercised too little, everything will sag and everything will sink. And you and I will not be what we once were, physically speaking. And if it's all about the physical in the relationship, then it's all downhill from that starting point. And that's why physical attraction, while a factor, is not the determining factor when it comes to who you should marry. Secondly, because we are more than just a body. We are body and spirit, and becoming one is a much richer concept than sexual union. When two people come together, it must be, it has to be more than a chemical combustion. Because when the Bible tells us that a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one, we're not just talking about physical attraction and sexual union there. We're talking about becoming one in body and mind and heart and soul and goals in life. And so that's a much richer concept. Of course, there will be a physical component. Of course, couples will enter into the joy of sexual union. But physical attraction is a factor, but not a determining factor. Because we will age. And the shape of our bodies will twist and turn. And a couple who are going to live together over a lifetime better have a connection beyond the physical. Because that will diminish over the years. And these fathers know that. And so they sit their sons down whose hormones are raging. They're red-blooded. They're looking at these beautiful young women in Israel. They're going, I think she's my type. I think she's my type. And these guys are going, hold on a minute, guys. Let me just get this into perspective. There's a debatable beauty that you need to think through. There's a third element in me saying that physical attraction is never enough to start or sustain a marriage, and it is this. To marry 
someone for their body and not for who they are is to make a thing out of your marriage partner. There must be a greater connection than the physical because that will change. The concept of oneness is much richer and deeper and you and I don't marry people to serve our own purposes. Well, those said, let's get back to looking at this debatable beauty. Remember what we said the last time we were together? There is a danger and a distraction in debatable beauty. There is a beauty that's not beautiful when you take a second look at it. There is a beauty that masks and hides ugliness. There is a beauty that's only skin deep. It's debatable. Some call it beauty, but these wise writers say, hold on a minute, that's a debatable point. That's questionable. It's beauty in one sense, but not beauty in another sense. There is a beauty that doesn't reflect the glory of God, and that which doesn't reflect the glory of God is not beautiful. Now, let's go for a few moments in, in this direction. This is an important point, and you need to put your thinking cap on here. You and I need to have a concept of beauty that's theologically rooted and, and based in the Word of God. Our culture constantly bombards us with beautiful images, defining what beauty is in terms of shape and size, in terms of weight and height, in terms of look and lifestyle. That's the culture. But the Bible says to us, do not be pressed into the mold of the culture. Do not be conformed to the world, the philosophy that's around you as a Christian. So when it comes to art and beauty and loveliness, how does a Christian determine those things from a theological perspective? Listen, God alone is good, correct? Amen. God alone is perfect. In fact, God dwells in splendor. And the Bible says about God that there is a beauty to his holiness. God is good. God is splendid. God is beautiful. And everything that God does is good and beautiful. At the end of those six days of creation, we read in Genesis 1.31 that God saw that it was good. Everything that God made was beautiful. The flowers, the fowl, the beasts of the field, the fish of the ocean, the sunset, the sunrise, the heavens declared his glory. Now that's important. That's where our definition of beauty starts. It starts with God. God determines, God defines what is beautiful. He's the measure of what is good. He's the measure of what is beautiful. So a Christian vision of beauty is rooted in the moral character of God. What we mean by that is this, that a Christian view of that which is attractive is rooted in the transcendental reality of who God is, what God does, and by extension, what God expects. Therefore, hang with me, evil can never be good, right? Because evil is the antithesis of God's character. God is what is beautiful. God is what is good. Therefore, that which opposes him can never be good, can never be beautiful. Again, that which is morally and biblically repugnant can never be beautiful. Man may call it beautiful. Man may say that art is beautiful, yet it's grotesque. Homosexuals may say to us that the love they have between each other is a beautiful thing, but it's not because it's morally repugnant. It stands opposed to the nature of God. 
God determines what is glorious and beautiful and splendid. And therefore, that which is beautiful must have character to it. That which is beautiful must have a moral component to it for us to say, you know what, that's beautiful. You see where I'm going with this? These fathers sat their sons down and said, hold on a minute, boys. Let's talk about what beauty is. Well, Dad, I've met this girl. She's six foot high. She's a stunning looking girl. She's beautiful facially. She's got a shape to die for. Dad, she's beautiful. Is she, son? Because remember the last time we were together, I'm not going to take time. We have two women in the book of Proverbs who were physically in form beautiful women. One was the immoral woman of Proverbs 6, and the other one was the imprudent woman of, of Proverbs 11:22. And although they were beautiful to look at, one was encouraging the young men of Israel to sin against the law of God and committing adultery, and the other woman, she was beautiful to look at, but she had no taste, no decorum, no dignity. In fact, remember that unbelievable contrast and comparison that the pig with a golden ring in its nose is like a woman without discretion, a beautiful woman without discretion. These two women had no character. They were void of spiritual commitment, moral integrity. And although they were beautiful to look at, really they were quite ugly in the sight of God. Because you see, we define beauty from a moral perspective. And that's important for us to grasp and our young people to lay hold of because there is a tendency and a tragedy in the human heart to corrupt the concept of beauty. Our human temptation and trait is to substitute the truly beautiful and the morally good for what is simply a feast to our senses and a delight to our eyes. That got us into trouble right at the get-go, right? Eve standing before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says that the fruit on that tree was good for food and beautiful for the eyes to see. But was it beautiful what she was looking at and thinking about? No. She was thinking about disobeying God's word. And you and I have a tendency, apart from the grace of God, to substitute what is morally good for what is satisfying to our senses. And young people need to lay hold of that reality. <laughs> when their hormones rage and they get emotionally engaged with someone, they need to ask themselves, is what I'm about to do and is what we're doing morally good? How do I view this person and this pursuit? Well, that's where we were, the debatable beauty. I can go on now to the desirable beauty, but I'm not because I want to make some qualifications because in... in Looking at the immoral woman of Proverbs 6 and the imprudent woman of Proverbs 11, I don't want us to get the idea that the Bible discounts the physical or that in criticizing those women, we are criticizing the fact that they were beautiful. We're not dying on looking well. We're not denying that there are some people who are beautiful to look at, who are attractive physically speaking. The Bible doesn't blush at that, in fact, the Bible describes some women in the Bible just in those terms. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was described as what? A beautiful woman. In fact, so much so that Abraham lied about the fact that she was his wife because when he got down to Egypt during the famine, he was frightened that some men might kill him and steal his wife. And so they pretended that they were brother and sister. Nothing wrong with physical beauty. There's nothing dirty about the idea of physical attraction. We're not denying that women by nature 
are creatures of beauty and generally speaking are more conscious of their bodies than men. But we do want to strike a biblical balance and just think about the whole issue of the body. How are are you and I to view our bodies? What's a biblical perspective on the body? Taking care of it, feeding it, dressing it, putting it out there in public display? How are we to view the body of the opposite sex? All those kind of things. Well, I came up with three practical things I think is helpful, especially to our young people, but to us all. Three things. Number one, we need to accept our individual bodies as gifts from God. We need to accept our individual bodies as gifts from God. Do you realize that you and I as individuals are absolutely unique? There's no one just quite like you. God has fashioned it that way. God has purposed it that way. In marriage, out of marriage, we are unique people. And in that sense, we're perfect. Not in the ultimate sense, but in a sense, theologically speaking, we're perfect because when you and I were born, we were born perfectly the way God made us. Amen? Even if we have deformity, even if we have disability, we are unique human beings created in God's image to reflect His glory. And in that sense, we are all beautiful, not pretty, beautiful. It's a different perspective than we're accustomed to hearing, a biblical understanding of true beauty. You're listening to Know the Truth with pastor and Bible teacher Philip DeCourcy, and today's message is just one portion of a multi-part message titled, Looking to Mary. You can hear the complete study when you visit us online at ktt.org. At Know the Truth, it's our mission to share the gospel with a world in need of truth through biblical teaching and preaching from God's Word. But we also believe it's important to equip others to do the same. Philip, why don't you tell us more about what we're offering our listeners this month, the opportunity to share the gospel by sharing Know the Truth. We and I'd love to. You know, the Bible tells us to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. And yet there are many Christians that don't feel ready. They don't feel equipped. They're nervous about sharing the gospel. So this month at Know the Truth, we want to make it easier for them to partner with us in sharing the gospel with a world in need of truth. That's our mission. And we want to equip our listeners to do it too. So we'd like to send a friend or a loved one of your choice an encouraging resource on your behalf. It's a book I've written entitled, Take Cover, Finding Peace in God's Protection. It's based on Psalm 46, verse 1, where we're encouraged to believe and take confidence in the fact that God is our refuge and our strength and a very present help in time of trouble. Uh, This verse reminds us that we can take shelter in God's presence, promises, and protections. And that's what this book communicates. You know, our world is very unsafe and very unsure. You look at the financial markets, you look at the political context, you look at the world at large, and and people are riddled with anxiety. They have no sense of peace and security. But I believe this book will be a tool in their hands to help them find peace with God and the peace of God. There's so much to take away from this book as we all seek to find peace in an unpeaceful world. I hope you'll redeem this special opportunity to request this resource and send it to a loved one. Wayne, will you tell our listeners how they can get a copy? 
I sure will, Philip. Thank you. When you give a gift of any amount in support of Know the Truth, you'll receive a copy of Philip's book, Take Cover, Finding Peace in God's Protection. Just select a friend or family member of your choice, and we'll send it to them on your behalf. You'll also receive your own copy of a book that pairs perfectly with our current study on wisdom and family. It's titled, What God Wants Every Dad to Know, and it uses King Solomon's letter as a guide to encourage fathers to pass along God's timeless wisdom found in Proverbs to their children. Just call 888-644-8811 or give your gift online at ktt.org. You can also write to us, address your envelope to Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Glad you joined us for today's study in Proverbs. Philip DeCourcy continues his message, Looking to Mary, right here Tuesday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free.